Between 1636 and 1637, New England Puritans had become internally united in a way that they weren't before, and they'd solidified their regional dominance and gained strength and confidence. And their transformation was tested even before it was complete. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. Throughout this period, large fleets of ships had continued to sail to New England, but in spring of 1637, the king issued an order hindering Puritans from going there because, he said, it seemed that their only real goal was to live without the reach of authority. Officials at the ports were not to allow settlers to go without his express permission, and they were required to sign an oath of allegiance to both the Church and the Crown of England. Then, in June, after the Mystic Raid and after Winthrop's re-election as Massachusetts governor, another massive fleet came. In addition to 3,000 people, it brought a letter from Archbishop Laud to a man named Burdett, and an order from the king that the colony send back its charter immediately. Burdett had been living in Pascataqua and watching the developments in Massachusetts. He'd told Laud that he was delaying his return to England because he wanted to keep monitoring the colony but that it seemed to him that the colonists were trying to achieve sovereignty. Simply governing themselves according to Puritan ideals didn't seem to be enough for them. He'd even reported that the court was willing to declare perjury and treason if anyone spoke of appeals to the king, and while I'm not sure if that was true, there were a couple of people who had or would threaten to appeal to the king and those appeals were withdrawn within 24 hours. In response to these reports, Laud had pushed King Charles to resume his attempts to revoke the charter. So they sent an order to New England telling the governor, or whoever had the patent, to send it back to London on that fleet of ships. No more delays. If they refused, the council would push the king to turn Massachusetts into a crown colony. Now, in 1635, when their charter was threatened, the colonists had been unsure of what to do. They delayed, discussed, and tried to keep a low profile, hoping that the problem would go away. But in 1637, when the threat was resumed, their response could be summed up in three words— you wouldn't dare. In response to the king's message, Winthrop drew up a humble petition, which was signed by the general court. In the petition, the colonists stated their refusal to send back the charter, saying that they had come over with their families and estates and with the encouragement of the king. In addition, they said that their efforts had greatly enlarged the king's dominions, but if their charter were removed, they would leave. They would either go to other colonies or move back home, and they would let New England fall into the hands of the French or Dutch. Watching how their colonies had crumbled, 
other Englishmen would be dissuaded from colonizing in the future, and English growth would be crippled while the Dutch and the French grew. Or maybe they'd just form their own independent government and encourage other colonies to do the same. But either way, the king would lose, so he might as well just let them live in peace. As King Charles showed repeatedly throughout his life, though, he was deeply stubborn and not somebody who was particularly swayed by threats. The king did dare. When he received the petition, he nullified the charter and declared Gorges the royal governor of the colony, but nothing changed right away. Colonists continued to flood into New England and to spread, and in 1638, more Puritan settlements were created in New England and Long Island, though they did have to adjust their settlement location after Dutch backlash. The same officials were elected again, Harvard opened its doors, and the population as a whole started to work on making the colony a comfortable place to be. Connecticut continued to worry about Pequot survivors, even considering sending a military expedition to fight a tribe which had given refuge to Pequot warriors. And Poscatawqua also submitted itself to the Massachusetts government. Their own government was falling apart, so they negotiated an agreement where they would give up their government and enjoy all their same rights and the same rights and political representation as the other citizens of Massachusetts. And after this, Massachusetts surveyed its new lands and claimed the entirety of New Hampshire. And it was after this that the legal dispute with Exeter that I mentioned in the Antinomian Controversy episode happened. But like I said, though things were quieter, they weren't completely conflict-free. And the most notable court case of 1639 would hone the colony's economic and political path. The case involved a merchant named Roger Keene, who was accused of overcharging for nails. But before we get into the case, I'd like to set the stage by discussing the political and economic context which it occurred in, and which in many ways fueled it. Politically, the issue regarded the balance of power among the colony's officials. Through the series of chaotic disputes which had characterized the early days of the colony, a rough system of separation of powers had emerged. First, there were the magistrates, the original government of the colony. They were a group of officials elected by the colony as a whole, who in turn elected the colony's governor and deputy governor. But, Then, in 1634, the colony's citizens had demanded more popular representation, and they had earned the right for each town to send two elected officials deputized to represent the town's will to join the general court. These were, rather appropriately, called deputies. The deputies outnumbered the magistrates and would continue to grow in their majority as the number of towns increased. 
But a year after the deputies had joined the general court, the magistrates had declared veto power, known as a negative voice. And the magistrates had also created a standing council, which was a group of people who would have magistrate rank for life. And though it was originally envisioned as a council which would have all of the colony's former governors, in reality it became much smaller, and only three people were ever elected to it. John Endicott, Thomas Dudley, and John Winthrop. And then, in the middle of all this, were the ministers, who had virtually no official power and who couldn't hold elective office, but who did control who earned full voting rights and who influenced the populace more than anyone. In particular, they conducted midweek sermons, which were the only public political speech allowed in the colony, and which were widely attended. So it had been an evolving system, and it was kind of messy, but it also worked. It was a unicameral system in which the deputies and magistrates could veto each other, and then the two groups of people were quite different because they were elected by only the people who traveled to the annual election, magistrates tended to be higher brow, more intellectual, and they started to fill the role of the colony's aristocracy. By contrast, the deputies who were elected in each town, which resulted in everyone being able to vote, were more populist. And they had different ideas. The deputies wanted a body of laws to guide judicial decisions, and the magistrates didn't, because the magistrates believed in a gradually evolving system of common law. The magistrates wanted things like a standing council and the negative voice, and the deputies disagreed because those things made the colony less democratic and decreased their own influence as the group with the majority of members. In a unicameral system, the magistrates could out-talk the deputies almost every time, and so the magistrates usually got what they wanted, even though they were the smaller group and the less democratically elected one. But the spats had been short-lived and easily resolved, and the members of the general court found themselves on the same side of the big issues most notably the antinomian controversy. And in fact, the antinomian controversy had smoothed relations between the two groups because the magistrates and deputies had been the ones who took the lead in purging the colony at a time when the ministers were still treating the opinionists with a certain amount of reserve and leniency. But the system was by no means complete. It wasn't in its final form. There were still questions to answer, and there were alliances between groups as they tried to maximize their power and achieve their political goals. So first, the magistrates and deputies were allied. They had allied to purge the opinionists, and they also joined forces to unsuccessfully push the ministers to preach against excessive apparel in their sermons. In this amicable era, the magistrates had even allowed some of the deputies' proposed laws to pass, 
but they still resisted a comprehensive body of laws despite growing popular pressure and the support of both ministers and deputies for such an idea, though in slightly different forms, which we'll get to later. But then the magistrates had passed an order requesting a meeting to discuss the minister's midweek sermons. These events were extremely political and explicitly partisan, and they were the only allowed public political speech in the colony, and they were also extremely popular. And it's easy to imagine that the ministers were using these speeches to push for a body of laws, which, as I said, was gaining a lot of public support at this time. And the ministers had already compiled two potential versions. Winthrop also complained that poorer people used the sermons to get out of doing work, and whether or not that was a valid complaint, the magistrates wanted to address the issue. And so they passed an order asking for a meeting with the ministers. And the ministers were deeply offended, and they refused to attend it. The magistrates explained that they just wanted a meeting. It wasn't anything offensive. It wasn't anything to regulate or otherwise control or insult them. They just wanted to get together to discuss church activities. But in their explanation, they also hinted that they may want to discuss the minister's classical meetings, which were meetings among the ministers and which many people saw as the ministers moving away from independent congregations and toward Presbyterianism. And so after the magistrate's explanations, the ministers were even less impressed with the idea. They point blank refused to attend and started to look for ways to limit magisterial power. So the magistrates and ministers entered a feud. Fundamentally, they were the groups with more in common than either had with the deputies. But in response to the magistrates' insults, the ministers decided to curb their power. The magistrates were on the verge of getting far too much power for comfort, and if they got that power, they had shown that they might try to control church activities. Their first action was to campaign hard against Winthrop's re-election as governor, but they were unsuccessful. So the ministers started seeking an alliance with the deputies, and this worked for the deputies because it was a great way for them to permanently increase their own influence. So deputies started to split away from the magistrates and ally with the ministers. So that was the political situation going into the court case. Now for the economic. Like many people of the time, but perhaps more than most, Puritans believed in largely communal economic systems. The general court and local authorities chose which industries to pursue and develop, and they encouraged specific activities by granting free land tax exemptions, and exclusive rights to people willing to invest in those chosen activities. They also built communities to foster economic and moral ideals. 
This was a big part of creating places like the Boston Common. Communities would designate common ground to substitute for the for the amassing of large privately owned tracts of land. These tracts of land would lead to an overly rural society, which meant less social cohesion and less ability to enforce laws. And when people formed new communities, it was as groups, not as individuals, by government design. And as part of this, there was the concept of economic oppression. Technically, economic oppression was when either a buyer or a seller took advantage of the other's ignorance or necessity. In reality, a large part of the accusation had to do with established prices and profit margins. The concept of just prices had been passed down from medieval ideas which themselves had their roots in Aristotelian logic but of course, the Puritans emphasized the ideas in a way that others didn't. There was an accepted price margin on goods sold in the colony, a margin of 10 to 30 percent, and deviation from this was subject to intense scrutiny. In fact, during the first 15 years of the colony's existence, the general court heard 50 cases regarding violations of these rules and local town courts heard even more, and the ministers took the issue particularly seriously. So seriously, in fact, that wrongful economic activity accounted for 8 of 40 total excommunications during the first 25 years of the colony's existence. One Puritan divine wrote, that a man in dealing should as readily design his neighbor's good, profit, and advantage as his own. The man who sells commodity as dear or for as much money, always as he can, seeks himself and himself only. These humble economic notions conflicted with the realities of life in a colony whose economic destiny was trade and the gap between ideal and reality had been widening. Life in New England didn't really allow for simple 10% profit calculations. There were costs and risks associated with buying supplies from England and then shipping them across the Atlantic or in trading with the colonies in the Chesapeake and the Caribbean. The new world just wasn't a secure or reliable place to conduct business. But as much as there was risk involved, there was also reward. New England's pre-industrial economy was fueled by trade, and the importance of trade was becoming clear in 1639. If the ministers were going to ensure that trade was conducted according to their moral standards, they would need to make a statement on the issue and get the government on their side sooner rather than later. It would be easier to guide development than to correct it. That's why in November of 1639, the ministers became the driving force in an attempt to address the colony's economic activity. In particular, the pastor of Raleigh, 
a man named Ezekiel Rogers, wrote to Winthrop on November 3rd and said that economic oppression was becoming a major issue in the colony. He wanted the general court to make an example of a few particularly notorious oppressors. And two days after he sent his letter, he got his wish. And two days after he sent his letter, he got his wish. As one of the richest men in the colony, Roger Keene was a perfect target. Keene had been trained as a tailor, but he traded and invested his way to fabulous wealth in the 1610s. He'd used some of that wealth to invest in both pilgrim and Puritan migration. He'd been a member of London's Honorable Artillery Company, as well as the Merchant Tailors Company, and then he'd moved to Boston in 1635. There, he'd set up a shop and tailor business and contributed significantly to the colony's growth. He'd helped fund public projects, including the building of the battlement on Fort Hill as the standoff with the king had happened, and he'd helped establish the ancient and honorable artillery company of Massachusetts, that Boston militia, and he'd been one of the few Bostonians to stand with John Wilson during the antinomian controversy. But a Boston citizen accused Keene of overcharging for nails. Specifically, he said that Keene had sold six penny nails for ten pence a pound, which seemed to give him a shocking 40% profit, which was outside the acceptable 10 to 30% bounds. It sounded a lot like oppression, but when Keene gave his side of the story, he said the man who had brought the lawsuit had originally bought six penny nails using credit for eight pence a pound, but then exchanged them for eight penny nails at 10 pence a pound, which was a profit margin of only 20%, which was normal. In addition, Keene said that the man who had bought the nails on credit never paid the debt and had only brought the suit to the authorities after Keene had pressed for payment. His defense was pretty compelling and all documented, making it pretty easy to prove. But when it looked like he would win the case, a large group of townspeople came forward with similar accusations. He explained that his prices reflected the increased risk of buying goods in England and transporting them across the Atlantic. At the end of the day, he only ever made a 20% profit, but his overhead was higher. That wasn't as compelling. Passing your own problems, mistakes, or divine punishments onto your customer wasn't ethical. So in light of the new testimony and unsatisfactory answers, the magistrates found him guilty and the court debated his sentence. The deputies, who were then allied with the ministers, wanted to fine Keene a huge amount of 200 pounds, whereas Winthrop and the magistrates wanted to be lenient. The compromise was to fine him the 200 pounds, but then to give the next general court the option to dismiss half the fine. Then 
the church elders met to discuss the possibility of ecclesiastical reproach. They did decide not to excommunicate Keene, but they formally admonished him, and he was censured. The day after the church delivered its rebuke, Cotton delivered a sermon specifically discussing wrongful economic behavior of merchants. Among the accusations, Cotton said that merchants tried to sell for as high a price as possible and buy for as low a price as possible, that they tried to raise their prices to recoup their losses, and that they tried to pass on the cost to customers if they made mistakes. For instance, if they bought for too high a price. And finally, Cotton said that they tried to take advantage of their own abilities and others' ignorance. Cotton believed in centralized economic control even more strongly than most other Puritans, and the target of his sermon was unmistakable. The next May, though, Keene did repent. He asked the church for forgiveness, and the church lifted its censure. At the next election, the deputies and ministers were able to use their newly solidified alliance to oust Winthrop and replace him with Thomas Dudley, who had always tended to side with the deputies, and made anti-magisterial leader Richard Bellingham deputy governor. The magistrates at first refused to accept the results of the election, but after the ministers sent a delegation to explain that they still deeply respected Winthrop and had only gone against him to prevent a hereditary office from forming, the conflict dissipated, and the new court could get down to business. The good news for Keene was that he and Dudley were related by marriage, and Dudley himself had been accused of oppression in the early 1630s when he had tried to corner the market on corn. So although he'd been elected by the people who had pushed to punish Keene the most severely, Dudley was extremely sympathetic to him and reduced Keene's fine to 80 pounds without even bringing the issue to a vote. The deputies had wanted Keene to pay the full 200 pounds and were furious that Dudley hadn't even bothered to consult with them, so they charged Dudley with breach of order. At first, Dudley scoffed and said he wouldn't suffer such things, but the next day he explained his behavior and crisis was averted. So Keene's reputation was tarnished, but he was still one of Boston's richest and most philanthropic residents, and his troubles were over for the time being. He could go back to business and remain an active member of the Boston community. And as for the ministers and deputies, though they were disappointed with Dudley on the Keene issue, they found his election to be a victory for their side. He expedited the ratification of the Body of Liberties, which had first been proposed by Ipswich Pastor Nathaniel Ward in 1638, but which the magistrates had been delaying a vote on, and he repealed the magistrates' order calling for a meeting about midweek lectures. 
And with the last pieces falling rapidly into place, the Puritans had essentially completed their New England model, their city on a hill. Their system was complete. Their experiment was a success. And just a few months later, the last two fishing vessels of the season brought a flood of news from England. The king had gone to war in Scotland, a conflict known as the Bishop's Wars, and that had forced him to call the first parliament in 11 years. Laud had been imprisoned, and almost overnight, England's political situation had reversed itself. And with the political reversal in England, immigration to New England also stopped. Again, almost overnight, and from 1640 on, for the next 200 years, more people would leave New England than move there. The Great Migration had ended. New England had taken its permanent form. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter, and you can find those links at the website, AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to first-hand accounts and things. See you next week. <laughs>